A couple of months ago, in November of uh, 2021, the Wall Street Journal released a report stating that between 30 and 50% of those who attended church prior to COVID now do not attend church. Across all denominations, across various different churches, they said that between a third and half of those who went to church on a regular basis before COVID hit our nation now do not go to church at all. Now, whether they were a turn or not, we do not know, but it's been a couple of years and it does not look good for them uh, to come back. Uh, what is even more concerning than that particular step is the fact that over the last couple of decades, this has been happening. What COVID did was it just put on steroids a trend that we were already seeing. And especially among the younger generations, they have been leaving the church over the last 20 years, so that with every seceding generation, their church attendance is less and less. So those in their 20s go to church less than those in their 30s, go to church less than those in their 40s, and so on. The younger generation that you are, the less percent chance you have of attending church. Now, some of those may have left the church and they still say, well, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm just not very active in church right now, but some percentage of those would say, yes, church is something that I used to do, and I read my Bible once upon a time, and following Christ was something that is part of my past, but now that's no longer who I am. That's no longer what I do. One of the more notable examples of this in our culture is uh, a guy named Joshua Harris. If you're over about 35 or 40 years old, uh, you likely know the name Joshua Harris. Back in the 90s, he wrote a best-selling book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The book was geared towards teenagers and college students, basically uh, encouraging them not to embrace the traditional model of American dating, but to go after a model that um, emphasized sexual purity and with an eye towards marriage. Um, he became a, a household name in Christian households. Uh, he became a pastor. He married, had three children. Um, everything seemed to be going well. He seemed to be sort of this model follower of Christ and leader in the Christian world until last year he announced that he and his wife were divorcing and that he was leaving his faith, that he was walking away from Christianity. Uh, the term that he used was deconstruction. Uh, if you're not familiar with that term, deconstruction uh, in the Christian world is breaking down what someone believed before. Uh, it is deconstructing their faith. Now, one author, a lady named Elisa Childers, in her book, Another Gospel, defines deconstruction this way. Deconstruction is a process of going through everything you've ever believed about God and Jesus. The Bible, Christianity, all of the doctrines, all of the history, everything you thought about it, and you're sort of rethinking everything. Especially among younger, younger generations, there are many who are going through this deconstruction process. Okay, push pause there for a second. We're going to come back to this uh, in just a moment. We are continuing our series today called Sins and Stones. It is on the life of King David. And if you've missed the last several weeks or if you're new here today, let me take a moment just to catch you up. Uh, David was the second king over Israel, lived about a thousand years before Christ, about 3,000 years ago. 
The first king over Israel was a man named Saul. Saul started off strong following the Lord. He was faithful to God, but then his heart drifted away from God to the point that God rejected Saul as king over Israel and rejected his entire family line. So in most other monarchies and and in fact in Israel and every other case, when the king died, the king's son would then become king. But in Saul's case, God rejected Saul and his family line. So God sent a high priest named Eli to the house of Jesse. And there at the house of Jesse, um, Eli anointed his youngest son David to become the next king over Israel. So David was the king in waiting, which was great, except the only problem, and it was a big, big problem for David, was Saul was still king and still in power. And Saul became jealous of David, and he wanted to rid the earth of David. And so time and time and time again, he attempts to take David's life. David escapes at one point, goes to a town called Nob, and this is what we saw last week. In Nob is where the tabernacle was located. That was the Jewish central place of worship. The high priest at that point was named Ahimelech. David goes to Ahimelech and he creates this whole story that he was on a secret mission for the king and that he needed supplies, specifically bread and a weapon. And Ahimelech gives him uh, both bread and the sword of of Goliath the Philistine. Um, And so David is supplied by Ahimelech. When we read that story last week, there was this verse, and I said, I want you to pay attention to this verse. It has nothing to do with this particular story but it will come up later. And this was the verse that was inserted in the passage last week. Chapter 21, verse 7. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. And I said this verse was a foreshadowing of something that was to come. Today we're going to see that something. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, 1 Samuel is right after the book of Ruth, which comes right after Judges. And we'll start with verse 6 in chapter 22. Here's what we read. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. And he said to them, listen, men of Benjamin. Saul was part of the tribe of Benjamin. His men were part of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says to them, listen, men of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse, that's David, Jesse was his father. Will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you all have conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. So at this point in the story, David had found safety in a place called a dulem. Some men had rallied to him there. He was sort of setting up a home base there. Saul gets word of this, and so he calls all of his advisors and his commanders together. And at this point, Saul had become incredibly paranoid. He believed that everybody was out to get him. Anybody who 
had any kind of association with David he believed was out to get him. Uh, just about anybody else. He was incredibly paranoid. He was so insane with jealousy that he believed that everywhere he turned, somebody was after him. And so he says to his commanders and advisors, all you guys, you're out to get me as well because you're not helping me hunt down and kill David. And then he throws out this question. Hey, when David becomes king, will he give you guys fields? Will he give you vineyards? Will he give you command over troops, over hundreds and thousands? In other words, guys, if I'm out of power, you are as well. If my administration is at place by David's administration, all the little goodies that you guys have been getting, they're all gone. So why is it that you guys aren't as intent on killing David as I am? Why won't you help me with this? So everyone just stands there, not really sure, knowing how to answer King Saul. And then somebody speaks up. Verse 9. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So, Doeg the Edomite, Doeg the little rat, speaks up and he tattles on Ahimelech the priest. And he tells Saul, Ahimelech helped him. Ahimelech gave him bread. Ahimelech gave him a sword. He needed these things and Ahimelech helped him. Verse 11. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of the Lord for him? so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. So again, Saul at this point, super, super paranoid, calls in the priest and says, you and David, you've got this plan. There's this insurrection. You guys have committed treason. You're out to get me. Why is it that you have conspired against me? He, he was so consumed with jealousy that he believed that everyone was trying to commit treason against him. And so he accuses Ahimelech of this. And this is how Ahimelech responds. Verse 14. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. So Ahimelech at this point sort of throws up his hands and says, Saul, wait a second. This picture that you have in your mind is twisted. You're believing things that are false. This is not true at all. What you are picturing does not match with reality. 
And then Ahimelech gives a couple of logical explanations to try to help Saul see the reality of the situation. The first was, look at David. He is your most loyal subject. You have accused him of conspiring against you, but remember David was the captain of your bodyguards? He, he was the guy who was the chief secret service agent guarding the king. He was protecting your life. And have you forgotten? He married your daughter. He's your son-in-law. He has been there for family events many different times. If David wanted to kill you, there are many occasions that he could have taken you out. But he didn't. Why? He is a loyal subject. And the second thing that Ahimelech points out is, hey, this is not the first time I've helped David. You think we got together and that he came to me and that I said, oh, okay, well, let's, let's conspire against the king. I was just doing what I've done many times before, which is somebody comes to me, I'm the high priest, they need help, they need me to go to the Lord for them on their behalf. I've done it for David, I've done it for you, I've done it for these others. This is just part of who I am and what I do. So you've created this story that is absolutely false. Ahimelech at this point hopes that he has convinced King Saul that what he believes is not true. Verse 16, But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. So Ahimelech makes his appeal to Saul, and Saul's response is this unbelievable command. Kill the high priest, kill all of his family members, kill all the priests at the tabernacle. I don't care what they say. I'm not interested in evidence or testimony, or excuses, or anything else. I'm the king, and I want every single one of them dead. Kill all of them. But the soldiers wouldn't do it. They knew that this was an awful, evil order. And even though Saul was king, they would not lift a hand against Ahimelech or the other priest. Essentially, they said to Saul, look, you're not going to put their blood on our hands. Kill us if you want to, but we are not going to kill these priests. We will not carry out this order. Verse 18, the king then ordered Doeg, the little weasel Doeg, you turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. The linen ephod was worn by the priest. He killed 85 priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priest, with its men and women, its children and infants, its cattle, its donkeys, its sheep. If you've ever seen the old movie, The Patriot, starring Mel Gibson, 
about the Revolutionary War, you know there is a character in the Patriot named Colonel William Tavington. He is a British soldier who is brought in when the tide begins to turn against the British troops, and uh, Mel Gibson's character and his soldiers are having all kinds of success, and they bring in William Tavington. And he is this ruthless soldier who will do whatever it takes to win the war. At one point, he goes into a town, rounds up all the people in the town, the men, the women, old men, children, all the people in the town, puts them inside a church, questions them in the church about soldiers they had harbored in their town, then locks the door of the church and sets the church on fire, burning everyone inside. He has a famous quote in the movie that goes like this. He says, You know, it's an ugly business doing one's duty, but occasionally it's a real pleasure. He was this evil character who took delight in killing even innocents. That was Doeg the Edomite. When Saul turned to Doeg and said, You kill him, he knew that he would have a willing accomplice. Doeg was standing there just salivating, waiting for the king to release him to go and carry out this command. And as awful and as wicked as Saul's orders were, Doeg managed to take it even further. Not just killing Ahimelech and the other priests, but killing all of their families, destroying the city of Nob, destroying all of the animals, killing all of the women, all of the children, all of the infants, just wiping them all out. Doeg was apparently a man who enjoyed carrying out the orders of King Saul. Now, here's the end of the story. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. So David here recognizes that it was his presence at the tabernacle that day that indirectly caused this incredible tragedy. And this priest escapes to him and tells him what happens. And David says, I am sorry. I take responsibility for this. But then he says this. This is so key. He says to Abathar, stay with me. Stay here with me. Here you'll find protection. Here you will be safe with me. The one who is out to kill you is after me as well. Stay here with me. This is where you will be safe. Most biblical scholars here believe that David is acting as a type and a foreshadowing figure of Jesus who would come a thousand years later. David, who was an ancestor to Jesus, David here is acting as a protector of Abathar in a physical sense. Yet Jesus would come later and Jesus would be our ultimate protector in a spiritual sense. It is in Jesus that we find ultimate safety and protection. It is under the shelter of Jesus 
in that place, when we stay in that place, that is where we find protection. David later, after this experience, sort of fleshes all of this out. David wrote Psalm 52. Now, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, right at the beginning of Psalm 52, uh, we read this heading. It says, for the director of music, it was a song. The Psalms were the hymn book of the, is, uh, the Jewish faith community. And so it was for the director of music, a masculine of David, that's some sort of musical term, masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So after that experience, after this priest comes to David seeking shelter, David sits down and he writes out this psalm reflecting on everything that had happened. And what he does is he contrasts those who are outside of the protection of the Lord with those who are under the umbrella of God's protection. Here's what he wrote, verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction, it is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking truth. And so this is directed directly at Doeg the Edomite. And David here is saying, look, you, you think you've got the world by the tail. You think you've got everything together. But look at all of these things you do. Now here are the consequences of of your actions and you being outside of God's protection. Verse 4. You love every harmful word, your, you deceitful tongue. Verse 5. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Now if you're reading a paper Bible, right here under verse 5 there's a little word S-E-L-A-H, Selah. You see that in several psalms. It is some kind of musical term. Exactly what, we're not sure. Most likely what Selah means is pause. Take a breath. I'm getting ready to change subjects. So pause here for just a moment. Reflect on what I just wrote. Now I'm going in a different direction. And that's what he does in verse 6. 1 through 5, it's about those who are outside of God's protection, those who are against the Lord. Verse 6, uh, David talks about the righteous. And here's what he, he writes. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you saying, Now here is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. So here's what David does. Several descriptions of those who are outside of the Lord, and then he contrasts that with those inside the Lord. So those outside the Lord... They boast often. They brag about themselves and what they have done. They do not make God their stronghold. Instead, they rely on their own strength. They trust in wealth rather than trusting in God. 
They love falsehood. They buy into lies. They believe lies. And their ultimate end is destruction. And they might have uh, victories for a little while, but the end of their story is destruction. Then David shifts and he says, here are those who are under the Lord, under the umbrella of God's protection. Number one, God is their stronghold. They don't rely on other things. They have strong roots and flourish. He compares those who follow God, who are under God's domain as olive trees. He says, I, I am like an olive tree. When I was in Israel a few years ago, we went to the Mount of Olives and our tour guide said, some of the trees here on this mountain date back to the time of Christ. They're 2,000 years old. Why? They've got strong roots and they flourish. Olive trees are strong, sturdy trees. They trust in God's unfailing love rather than trusting in themselves. They place their hope in God rather than placing their hope in things that are fleeting, that are fading away. And then here's the key. Their ultimate end is eternal joy. David says they will spend their time praising God in the presence of His saints. Our ultimate safety and protection is only found in Christ. And it's not found in any other place. Here is my fear. We have seen and we are seeing the younger generations walk away from church and in many cases walk away from the Lord and they are giving up this protection. They are giving up this safe place. They are giving up this umbrella or, or this um, protection of God who can only provide for our ultimate safety. And theologically, those who have left the church, we can't see their hearts. We don't know if they've walked away from the Lord entirely or if they're just wandering in the desert. But here's what I know about my own life. Anytime I have wandered away from the Lord, it has not gone well for me. When I walk out from under God's protection and quickly I want to try and get back. Several years ago when our oldest daughter was somewhere between two and three years old, she acquired hand, foot, and mouth disease. If you're a parent, you've ever dealt with that, you know how much fun that one is. Uh, she would not eat or drink anything. And so as several days kind of went by and she wasn't drinking anything at all and becoming lethargic uh, as a result of that, we, we were trying to get everything in her. We would give her juice and she didn't want juice. We thought, well, she'll take ice cream. You know, every kid loves ice cream, wouldn't eat ice cream. Just wouldn't eat or drink anything at all. No matter what we gave her, she wouldn't. All she wanted to do was sleep. Um, she was almost becoming unresponsive. And so about day four or day five, we said, this is, this is getting a little scary. We need to do something about this. So I, I took her to the doctor, literally had to carry her to the car, place her in her car seat, got to the doctor's office, had to get her out of the car seat, carry her into the doctor's office, carry her to the waiting room like a limp rag doll, just carried her in there. Um, she laid in my arms, her head on my shoulder. They called us back. We went into the room. I sat in the chair. She just sort of crawled into my arms, put her head on my shoulder, not saying anything, not, not moving hardly at all. The doctor came in and I said, yeah, she's got hand, foot, mouth. And I, I said, I know that there's nothing you can really do for hand, foot, mouth, but she's not eating or had anything to drink in several days. And we're just becoming concerned. 
So the doctor looked in her mouth and said, yeah, she's sort of dehydrated. We, we probably just need to run some tests to see if there's anything that we need to do. So the nurse will be in with you in just a minute. So the doctor left and the nurse came in and the nurse said, the doctor uh, told me that we need to run some blood tests. I said, okay. And then the nurse pulled out a finger pricker. I know that's not the medical term for those things. I don't know what the medical term is for the finger pricker. But when I say finger pricker, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The little plastic deal with the trigger on the end. You know, the nurse takes it and they put it on the kid's finger and they pull the trigger and it makes the kid scream. Now, that's a finger pricker. So the nurse came in and she said, we need to draw some blood. We, we, we need to run a few tests here. And she pulled out the finger pricker. So she approached me, she approached my daughter, we were in the chair, and my daughter looked and she saw the finger pricker. My formerly lethargic, unresponsive daughter somehow suddenly came to life. It was like she had gone to a revival service and some pastor had laid hands on her and she came to life. I mean like unbelievably just was screaming and yelling, throwing her legs out kicking at the nurse to keep that nurse away, yelling where people in the hallway could hear, do not come near me, keep that thing away from me. I mean, screaming at the top of her lungs. Now, my first thought, and you got to understand, I'm very cheap. My first thought was, I could have avoided a copay today just by keeping one of these finger prickers on hand because evidently, there's like a magic cure in a finger pricker. Keep one in the cabinet. Kids says they're sick. They need to go to the doctor. You know, just, well, here, let's get the finger pricker out. And, you know, suddenly back to life. So my daughter is just in, in full rage at this point at this nurse. And I realize this is not good. Like, she's kicking at the nurse, and there's going to, you know, be somebody that's injured here. So I took my daughter, wrapped my arms around her, turned her to face me, wrap my arm, one arm around her upper body, one arm around her legs to keep her legs from kicking this nurse. And I pulled her in tightly to my chest and held her as close as I could. The nurse then took her arm, took her finger, took the finger pricker, pricked her finger and managed to get some blood. Now I'm sure in my daughter's mind at this point, all she could think was, why is my daddy letting her do this? Why is my daddy not protecting me from this pain? Why am I having to suffer? Her little two or three-year-old mind could not comprehend the fact that everything I was doing was out of a heart of love. That I was holding her tightly to myself and I was allowing her to experience this pain because it was for her ultimate good. And that they would test her blood to see if there was anything that we needed to do. Here's why I tell you this. If you are a follower of Christ, you are under the protection of God so that you might suffer every now and then. You might experience pain in life, but it comes from the heart of a good, good father who only allows those things to happen because he loves you and he knows that it is for your ultimate good. It comes from the heart of a God who is like a surgeon who only makes cuts that are necessary and ultimately for your good. Why would you ever leave and forsake that? Why would you ever walk away from that kind of protection? One of my favorite hymns that we will sing in just a moment is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. 
One of the reasons I love that hymn is there is a line in that hymn that has spoken to me so many times. The writer said, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Every time my heart has wanted to wander away from the Lord, I have paid the price for that. And I've realized how foolish, under God's protection, is where I want to be. David said to Abathar, stay. Stay here with me. This is where you'll find protection. This is where you will be safe. Jesus says to you, stay. Stay here with me. This is where you'll find protection. This is where you will be safe.